Have you ever found yourself saying something out loud that in that moment, you know, you thought it for just a moment and, and it sounded good and you decided you believed that what you were thinking was true and, and then you, you said it out loud? And, and then afterward, uh, you spent some more time thinking about what you said out loud and you just realized that what you said in that conversation wasn't true at all. Um, that happened to me recently. I was in a conversation a few weeks ago uh, with someone and, and we were talking about faith and we were talking about how Christian faith intersects with you know, the political, social, moral climate you know, within our country right now and how our faith is supposed to intersect and, and, and how we respond with faith in, in a world that's so emotionally charged with all of these divisive issues and important conversations that are going on, important conversations that oftentimes aren't being had in a very healthy or productive way. And so we were talking about that. And as we were talking about the climate and the culture that we're all a part of here in 2023, I heard myself say out loud to this person, well, we live in a day when it's not easy to follow Jesus. Now, in that moment, my assumption was, and the insinuation that I was making to this person was that in some way, there is something uniquely challenging. Something uniquely arduous about the days that we live in right now that makes following Jesus extraordinarily more difficult and daunting, say, you know, for another person living at another time in history. And I just thought about it because, you know, everything that's going on and there's such animosity in the world and a growing antagonism towards Christianity and people of faith. And, and I just heard myself say that out loud, but, but here's the thing. After I left that conversation and, and I was replaying it in my mind, and I actually you know, spent some time thinking about what I said, which would have probably have been a good idea before I actually said anything. But once I actually stopped to think about what I said, um, it was unmistakable to me. It was obvious to me that what I said wasn't actually true. Uh, at best, it's partially true. Uh, it is true that we live in a day when it's not easy to follow Jesus. That, that is true. Uh, we live in a day when it's not easy to follow Jesus. However, it is not true that we live in a day that is in some way, somehow uniquely Herculean or perplexing when it comes to following Jesus. Matter of fact, it doesn't matter who you are or when you live in history, the inconvenient truth is this, there is seldom a convenient time to follow Jesus. That's just, that's, just the honest, that's just the honest answer. That's just the honest truth that there's never a convenient time to follow Jesus. It's an inconvenient truth. It's something we wish weren't true, but, but it is true because if I can be even more honest, um, following Jesus is rarely easy. And let me tell you why following Jesus is rarely easy. Uh, because, you know, here we are in 2023 and we've got all these challenges and all these difficulties, but, but, but here's the grander truth. Uh, regardless of our generational place in history, Following Jesus is rarely easy because following Jesus has never been easy. Uh, matter of fact, regardless of the family narrative that you were born into, maybe you were born into a family where you got a head start in life. And some of us and some of you, you, you were. You were born into a family and you had a head start over some people because of your mom and dad, because of your socioeconomic status, because of education, because of opportunities. You know, and, and you were born with a head start. Some of us were born into families where we felt like like the cards were stacked against us from the very beginning. And even though one of those may be true for you and either one of those two is gonna probably be true for all of us or somewhere in the middle, it doesn't matter what family narrative you were born into, following Jesus is not gonna be easy, whether you were born with a head start or whether you were born with the cards stacked against you. And regardless of the cultural conditions of the day, whatever they may be, as divisive and as emotionally charged as the culture may be and as, a, and as, as antagonistic as people may be growing towards people of faith, following Jesus isn't easy. Following Jesus is rarely easy. You say, why? Why is that? Because at some point in time, following Jesus will cut against your sensibilities and your logic. Some of you are geared towards logic and reasoning and you know, you're just real sensible and, and you're cerebral and you're thoughtful and that's just kind of how you're wired. Uh, following Jesus 
will not be easy for you sometimes because what Jesus will lead you to do and what Jesus asks you to do, when you follow Jesus from time to time, it will cut against your sensibilities and your logic and your rationale. It will not make sense to you what Jesus says for you to do. It doesn't make sense to you what Jesus is teaching you to do. And so following Jesus isn't gonna be easy for you sometimes because you rely on your sensibilities, your rational thought, your logic, and sometimes following Jesus takes us in a different direction than our sensibilities, rational thought, and logic. Uh, for some of us, uh, following Jesus isn't gonna be easy because following Jesus will betray our instincts and our inclinations. Uh, some of us are more emotional in our wiring. Uh, we're kind of gut driven. You know, if we feel it, we go with it. You know, we got a pretty dependable gut and we got a pretty good instinct and our inclinations most of the time seem, seem to be spot on, but there will be times that following Jesus is gonna be very difficult for those of us who like to follow our instincts and inclinations because sometimes our instincts and inclinations want to go here, but yet Jesus says, I want you to follow me there. And it won't be easy in those moments to follow Jesus. Uh, for some folks, uh, Jesus is gonna be difficult to follow. It's not gonna be easy for you to follow Jesus because there are gonna be times in your life and my life when Jesus stands in the way of your plans, of your wishes, your desires, uh, because Jesus himself has a plan for your life. And Jesus believes that his plan for your life and my life is better than our plan for our life. Uh, Jesus has desires for you and Jesus has desires for me. And there's gonna be times when I've made plans and plans are good, when I've got desires and those desires are, are, are kind of wired into us to a certain degree, but there's gonna be times when you wanna make a plan to do this and your desire is to do this, but yet Jesus says, I want you to follow me and it's not part of your plan. It's not what you necessarily want to do. And in those moments, following Jesus is not going to be easy because at times it's gonna seem illogical and nonsensical to follow Jesus doing what Jesus has taught you and called you to do. At times, it's gonna be very difficult for you because your gut says, I shouldn't do this. Your gut says, this isn't right. This doesn't feel natural. Your inclinations are fighting against it. And it's gonna be very hard to follow Jesus when he leads in that other direction. And then when the plans that you've made and the desires that you have kind of stand at odds with the plans and the desires that Jesus has for your life, it's not gonna be easy to follow Jesus in that moment because Jesus says to you and to me and to us, follow me. And when he says, follow me, what he's actually doing is he's calling us away from what is easier and he's calling us to what is better. When Jesus says, I want you to follow me, he's calling us away from what is easier. It's easier to follow your sensibilities and logic and rational thought for many of you. Sometimes it's easier for those of us who are more emotional to follow our gut, our inclinations, our instinct. Uh, sometimes it's easier for us just to go ahead and just map out our entire life, have a plan. You know, we factored in everything. We're high achievers. We're get it done kind of people. And, and that comes easy to us. But when Jesus says, follow me, more times than not, he's calling us away from what is easier and he's calling us to what is better. And what is better, it's not always easier. Jesus says, I want you to have grace. I want you to have grace, I don't want you to hold a grudge. It's easier to hold a grudge than it is to have grace. It's easier to have a grudge than it is to show grace. It's easier to do that, but it's not better. Jesus calls us as followers of Jesus. He calls us to be peacemakers, not, not sowers of discord, not instruments of division, not antagonists, not people who try to solicit conflict. Is it, is it easier to be a peacemaker? No, but is it better? Yes. Jesus says, I want you to bless your enemies, not curse them. Well, I don't know about you, but it's easier for me to curse my enemy than bless them. And Jesus said, it might be easier, but it's not better. Jesus says, follow me, and I'm gonna lead you in the direction of generosity, I'm gonna lead you away from greed, because being greedy is easy, but being generous, that's better. I'm calling you to come close to mercy and forsake vengeance, because vengeance and revenge and spite and anger and get even and all of that type of thinking, that's easier to do, but mercy is better. But maybe perhaps most, most difficult of all and best of all, Jesus calls us, when he says, follow me, he calls us to renounce self-allegiance. He calls us to renounce 
allegiance to ourselves because that's where a lot of us struggle most. Our greatest allegiance is to ourselves. And he says, I want you to abandon and renounce all self-allegiance and all the forms that it comes in, self-serving, self-preservation, self-centeredness. And I want you to begin to live a life where you prefer the interest of others over your own interest. Now, is that easier to do? No, but Jesus said it is certainly better. And as he calls us to resist this selfishness and this self-allegiance and, and all of this self-centeredness that, that comes so easy to some of us, he, he calls us to this one overarching ethic. He, he calls us to embrace this, this overarching value that begins to shape all the framework for my life and your life. It begins to be the framework that, that begins to shape all the relationships, interactions, conversations, actions, and reactions in our life. In that overarching ethic, when Jesus says, follow me, he invites us to the way of love. He invites us to embrace this ethic and this value of love. Now, for the men in the room and for those men that are watching online, Resist the temptation that when you hear Jesus invite us to a lifestyle of love, resist the, the notion and resist the inclination to think that he's talking about some type of sappy, sentimental, you know, hold hands around the campfire, hippie kind of love. Uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not emotional even so much uh, because we've been so corrupted by, by this modern idea of love, you know, and, and the way that we talk about love, it just cheapens it, it dilutes it, it makes it so shallow. You know, people talk about falling in love and falling out of love and, and they talk about how love just happened and, you know, almost like love was some kind of uncontrollable, uncontrollable chemical reaction that happened in their brain and, and now they're, they're struck with love and then maybe one day that chemical reaction may be undone and they don't love anymore. And, and we've, just, we've just been so corrupted in our ideas and our verbiage about love. But when Jesus talks about love, he's not talking about something that's necessarily emotional. He's talking about something that's willful. He's talking about the fact that love is a choice. Love has always been a choice. It is a choice, it will always be a choice. And it is a choice that always requires self-sacrifice. You cannot love the way that Jesus teaches that we are to love without embracing this idea that I am willing to sacrifice myself for you. I'm willing to sacrifice myself for others. The love that Jesus talked about is a love that says, you know what, I'm willing to lose something if it means that you can gain something. Is that easier? No. But Jesus said it's a better way to live. When Jesus talks about love, he's talking about something that requires us to live our lives seeking to do what's best for everybody else, even if it's not what is best for us. That I'm willing to love you in a such a way that I'm willing to do what's best for you, even if I don't feel like it's the best thing for me. That the best thing that I can do with my life is to find out what's good for you. And when I discover what's good for you, if I'll actually do what's good for you, Jesus says that's the best possible way you can choose to live your life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And it's what it means to embrace this, this ethic of love. When you embrace Jesus's idea of love, you understand that truth is important. Truth is central, but truth, truth is a tool. Um, truth is an instrument. It's not a weapon. It's not a hammer. It's not a sword, it's a scalpel that brings healing. It's not a sword that wounds people and leaves people wounded. Jesus said, listen, if you're gonna follow me, I'm inviting you to the way of love. In other words, following Jesus, following Jesus will require me and it will require you, it will require us to abandon all mindsets, posturing, biases, prejudice, stereotypes, categories, and behavior that limits hinders or restricts my capacity for love. If you're gonna follow Jesus, Jesus says to you, he says, you're gonna have to abandon any mindset, any attitude, any posturing, any bias or prejudice or stereotypes that you've embraced about people, categories that you've placed people in, behavior that you're engaging in that limits, hinders, or restricts your capacity to love. Because Jesus says, when you resist these things, 
that restrict and hinders your capacity to love. When you lay those things aside, you're gonna be able in a more easel, uh, an, e an, easy, an easier way, you're gonna be able to, to integrate the teachings of Jesus, you're gonna be able to take the disposition of Jesus, the attitude of Jesus, uh, the worldview of Jesus, Jesus' approach to culture and to life, you're gonna be able to integrate that into your own. And that's what church people have always called discipleship. It's when Jesus' way becomes our way. It's when Jesus' attitude becomes our attitude. It's when Jesus' approach becomes our approach. His disposition becomes our disposition. And when you read through the Gospels and you listen to Jesus, make no mistake about it. He's very clear. To love the way that Jesus loved, it's risky. It's costly. It's demanding. It takes work. It requires time. It necessitates thinking. At times to love like Jesus loves, it can be painful, it can be embarrassing, it can be frustrating. It's not easier, but it's better. Loving like Jesus, easier, no. Better, yes, especially in the day we live. The day that is ravaged by division, that's suffocating in cynicism, that's marinating in anger, and it seems to be just seething in hatred. I mean, it's all around us. I mean, just listen, just read a little bit. You, you know, you, you already know this. That's the world that we live in. We live in a world, and as frustrating as it is for some of us, we live in a world where a lot of people, too many people, maybe even a growing amount of people, they're, they're, they're enslaved to their ideology, their religious ideology, their political ideology. They're just enslaved to their ideology to the point that they have built mental fortresses that allows them to react to everything around them without actually having to think about anything around them. They, they've just adopted some ideas, adopted a way of thinking, adopted some assumptions, adopted some, you know, some, some uh, you know, stereotypes or some talking points, and they've just adopted it as their own, and, and they're just able to react all the time, and they don't have to really think about anything. Uh, I think we live in a world, this is just my two cents, uh, and then I'll move on from my opinion in just a moment, but I think we live in a world where it seems like a lot of people, uh, they decide who they like really largely influence by who they dislike. And when they have a group of people over here that they dislike, if they hear that this, this group of people they dislike like this group of people, then they possibly can't also like those people. So I've now got to dislike them because the people I dislike likes them. And, and, and so it's just all kinds of craziness. You know, there's division, there's all these complexities, all, the, all these emotionally charged uh, conversations that we're having, and, and many of them are important and necessary, and we should have them, but the problem is we're just not having them in a very productive way. Tempers are high, um, you know, Anger's high, optimism's low, and, and we're seemingly left in a world that's got a lot of apathetic indifference and a lot of radical extremism. And, and here's the thing, Jesus' world was not any different. That, that's what we have to understand when we read the Gospels. Jesus' world was fueled, it, it was a world of division and hatred that was fueled by religion, politics, economics, and prejudices of all kind. It sounds vaguely familiar to the world that we live in. A world of division and hatred that's fueled by you know, religion, politics, economics, and prejudices of all kinds. That was, that was the world that Jesus was in. And in order to demonstrate and to illustrate how people of faith and how followers of Jesus are supposed to navigate in a world like that, Jesus told a story. And I think it was Jesus' most offensive story, his most controversial story. And the story that he told was really a response to a question. And it was a very relevant question then, and it's a very relevant question today. And, and this is how we read it in the Gospel of Luke. Luke says on one occasion, an expert in the law, a religious leader, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now that's his motive. He's not there in good faith. He's there to trap Jesus. He's got an agenda. He's there to test Jesus. And he says, teacher, here's my question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, He's not there to make a question, you know, ask a question as much as he is there to make a point. And this expert, he, he's acquainted with Jesus. He's heard Jesus teach. He knows basically the talking points that Jesus has consistently had throughout his, his public ministry. And, and so he asks this question to Jesus, again, not in good faith, but to test Jesus and to trap Jesus and to back Jesus into a corner. And so his question, you know, it's about eternal life, but it's more, it's more than that. It's about what he needs to do. 
in order to have eternal life? What does he have to do in order to be good with God? How, how, how does he need to live his life in order to have God on his side? Uh, the lawyer could have said, Jesus, I want eternal life and I wanna make sure that I stay on the good side of God. So could you tell me what's most important to God? so that I can stay on God's good side, so I can have God's good graces because I'll never have eternal life if I don't you know, find myself on God's side and God's not on my side. So will you tell me what I need to do? Will you tell me what's most important? What do I need to pay the most attention to? What do I need to care most about? If there's one box that I definitely need to get right, what is it? Tell me what it is so that I can have eternal life. Now, it's a good question, but it's not the question that he really wants to ask, uh, but he's gonna get to that in just a moment. So he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus said, okay, let me respond to your question with a question. Jesus said, what is written in the law? You're the expert, you tell me. And he replied, how do you read it? Jesus said, how do you read it? How, how do you teach it? How do you interpret it? You tell me what authentic faith is. If you have to have authentic, true faith in order to have eternal life, you tell me what true, authentic faith looks like. You tell me what's most important to God. You tell me what God's greatest value is. You tell me what God is most concerned that you and I do. And so the lawyer, he knows the answer to the question because ever since he was a child, he was taught to memorize one particular verse of scripture and to recite it not once a day, but two times a day. And from the earliest of age, he was taught one particular passage out of the book of Deuteronomy. And he would quote that passage from the time that he was a child until he would die, he would quote it twice a day. And this lawyer knew, he knew the answer to the question. He was an expert in the law. And this is how he answered Jesus's question back to him. So Jesus pushes it back and said, well, you tell me. And so he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all of your mind and. But before we get to what comes next, He's quoting from the books of Moses. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, true faith is when you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how you get eternal life. It's through true authentic faith. And true authentic faith, it looks like when you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so everybody's kind of shaking their head because everybody's taught to recite this verse of scripture from childhood twice a day all their life. And so they knew exactly uh, what he was saying when he was saying it. And then he took it a step further. And the lawyer said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's important to note, this last part was not part of what Jewish people recited twice a day. This was an addition that the lawyer put on because I believe he knows what Jesus has been teaching. He knows that Jesus has been teaching about this overarching law of love, this ethic of love. And he's heard Jesus teach this himself. Jesus has been asked over and over again, hey, what is most important to God? What is most important to God? What is most important to God? And Jesus taught over and over again that the most important thing to God is that you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus taught over and over and over again. And undoubtedly the lawyer knew that. And so he's gonna use Jesus's teaching against him because again, this is a test, this is a trap. So Jesus says, I want you to tell me what a person must do to inherit eternal life. You tell me what's most important to God. He said, okay, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because I've heard you say this, love your neighbor as yourself. Because according to Jesus, this is what's most important to God. And according to Jesus, when it comes to God, nothing is more important to God. God is most concerned with whether you love him and whether or not you love your neighbor as yourself. It's more important than doctrine. It's more important than theology. It's more important than praying. It's more important than fasting. It's more important than Bible study. The most important thing to God is that we love God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus even went so far to say that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That is, that when you read the Old Testament, if you wanna know what the truest interpretation and application of the Old Testament is, it's always love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And even more than that, Jesus got even more practical and he said, when you do for others, the way that you would want others to do for you. When you treat others in a way that you would want others to treat you, you're actually in lockstep with the purpose 
and the truest application of the law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets. He says, when you do and treat others the way you would want to be done for and the way that you would want to be treated, he says, you are obeying the spirit of the Old Testament law. You are fulfilling it. That's what Jesus taught. So this lawyer, he's heard this, but he's trying to use Jesus's words against him. And so Jesus says to him, well, you have answered correctly. Hey, congratulations. You, you, you got that right. And then Jesus looks at him and says, so do this and you'll live. You're asking me, what do you gotta do for eternal life? If you're asking what true authentic faith looks like, if you're looking for what's most important to God, you're right. It is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it is to love your neighbors yourself. But it's just not enough to have the right answer, and it's just not enough to believe it, and it's just not enough to know it. You gotta do something with it. So do this, and you'll live. Because if you actually do it, it'll be evidence of true authentic faith. If you actually do this, you're actually obeying what is most important to God. But Luke goes on and he gives us a bit more information. He says, but he, the lawyer, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus the real question that he wants an answer to. And this is the trap. This is what he thinks is gonna get Jesus in hot water. This is what he thinks is gonna get Jesus separated from the crowd that's gonna cost Jesus influence. He says, my question then is, who then is my neighbor? The lawyer wanted to know the extent of this love your neighbor as yourself stuff. He wanted to know if there were any exceptions to love your neighbor as yourself. He's like a good religious person. He's looking for a loophole. He's looking for an addendum. He's looking for a parenthesis. Love your neighbor as yourself, except for, and except when. So he's asking, well, how far do I have to go with this? And how much do I have to do in order to meet this requirement on a minimal basis? I wanna make sure I check the box, but I wanna also make sure that I don't go overboard. So tell me, who is my neighbor? Now, this guy's not interested as much in who his neighbor is as much as he is in who his neighbor isn't. He wants to know who's not my neighbor. He wanted a less demanding interpretation of the scripture. And at the end of the day, if we're honest, that's what we all want. We want a less demanding interpretation of what God says is true. Because if it's less demanding, it's easier. And we have been conditioned for most of our life to think that easier is better. So this guy wants to know, Jesus, tell me who I'm required to love and who I'm not required to love. And really what he's actually saying that we're gonna discover, he's saying, am I required to love people of different ethnicities? Do I have to love people with different ethnicities? Do I have to love people in other religions? Do I have to love people of other nationalities? Am I required to love people who can't or won't reciprocate my love for them? Am I required to love people whose words, actions, beliefs, and behavior that I find repugnant? Am I supposed to love people that I think are reprobate, that I find to be an abomination? Am I required to love them? Who am I required to love and who am I not required to love? That's the question, who is my neighbor? And he wanted to shrink his responsibilities to the smallest possible size. Now, we're dealing with an expert and we're dealing with a lawyer. So he knows what he's up to and he's sharp. He's quoting this last part, this love your neighbors yourself. It's not from the book of Deuteronomy. It's actually from the book of Leviticus and it's from chapter 19 in the book of Leviticus. And I know many of you, you've already got Leviticus chapter 19 committed to memory and you're already there. You know exactly what Moses says in Leviticus 19. But for those of us who've not committed it to memory, this guy, he pulled that passage, love your neighbors yourself from Leviticus 19. And in Leviticus 19, Moses actually defines who their neighbors were to be. And this is part of the trap. So let me give us Leviticus 19, verse 18. This is what God through Moses told the nation of Israel. He said, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And the implication being your neighbor, that's your people. And your people, that's your neighbor. So if they're not your people, they're not your neighbor. 
and all bets are off. But when it comes to your people, when it comes to your tribe, those are your neighbors. So you love them as yourself and everybody else who's not your people, you are not required to love as a neighbor. You're not required to love them as you love yourself. Because if they're not your people, they're not your neighbor. Now, so Jewish people, they had a chapter and verse and they had the beginnings of a theology. They had the beginnings of a worldview. They had the beginnings of how they would approach the world around them. And Jewish people were taught that their neighbors were other Jewish people. So if you came across a Jewish person, that's your neighbor and you were commanded by God to love your neighbors yourself. But if you came across a person who was not Jewish, you were not required to love that person as a neighbor. They might be your enemy. You might find them repugnant. You might find them insulting and you're not under any obligation to love them as yourself. And so all of this is wrapped into what this guy is saying. If you're Jewish, hey, that's your neighbor. But as time went along, if you were a really religious Jew, if you were a top shelf, all-star Jewish religious person, a person of great faith, you even were more strict than that. Not all Jewish people were your neighbor, but your people, the people who believed like you, lived like you. But if a Jewish person happened to be a tax collector or a prostitute or a sinner, then that's not your neighbor. And you're not required to love them. So there, there was even a more restrictive interpretation to Leviticus 19 verse 18. A lot of religious Jewish people, they didn't believe that even all Jewish people were their neighbor. And so when they thought about love your neighbor as yourself, they thought in terms of, okay, I'm gonna love the people who talk like me, believe like me, behave like me, worship like me, the people who share my politics, who share my status, who, who share my worldview. Those are my people and my people are my neighbors and I will love my people, my neighbors as myself, but everybody else, all bets are off. And that was the kind of the, the way of thinking when Jesus is, is dealing with this expert and that's what's beneath the surface. So what's beyond the scope, Jesus? Who's my neighbor? Look at the question one more time so that you kind of get where all of this is coming from. Wanting to justify himself. He wanted to know who's my neighbor. And so in reply, Jesus tells a story and he said, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho because Jerusalem was at a high elevation and Jericho was at a low elevation. So you were always going down from Jerusalem. And so there was a man leaving Jerusalem headed to Jericho and he was on this road and everybody knew the road that Jesus was talking about. It was steep and winding. It was difficult. It was dangerous. Uh, it was physically demanding to take this road. Uh, it was also very desolate and isolated. Uh, there were not a lot of settlements along the way. Uh, so if you needed shelter, if you needed help, there wasn't a lot of places to find shelter and there wasn't a lot of people you know, to find assistance with. Uh, it was just desolate, it was isolated. There were a lot of caves along that road. So robbers and thieves would hide in the caves and would jump people you know, as they were there and would rob them and you know, just you know, beat them up. And it was just a really dangerous place, dangerous in lots of ways. Uh, this is a picture of it, just so kinda, you can kind of know what it looks like. It's, it's just so cliffy and rocky and, and the road just wraps around and there's all these caves. And, and so this is what everybody thought of when Jesus started telling the story. Everybody knew the road that he was talking about. He says, so this man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and they went away leaving him half dead. Now this is brutal, this is tragic, but this is life. And Jesus never pretended that life doesn't happen. Now Jesus, he's gonna tell this story, but it requires us to engage with it. He's expecting everybody who's listening, including us, to emotionally connect to the context and to the backstory of the story that he's about to tell. He wants us to imagine that here is an innocent human being, an innocent human being who doesn't deserve this, but an innocent human being, they're jumped, they're stripped of their clothes, they're beat violently to the point of almost death and then they're left to die alone. Jesus, I want you to get that in your head. And, and that's not difficult because we see things like this happen all the time, but we've become so desensitized to it. We almost miss the point of what Jesus is trying to communicate because we, we see stuff like this all the time. But I would encourage us to take it a step further so that we can emotionally you know, get into the tension that Jesus is creating. 
Imagine this is your son and he's jumped by a mob of guys and they strip him of his clothes, they beat him and they leave him for dead. Imagine it's your daughter. Imagine it's your wife or your mother or your sister or your father or your husband or your brother. Just put someone that you love deeply into this story and imagine if something like that happened to them. And, and as Jesus creates all of this emotional tension, because I think we all know how we would feel, Jesus then allows a question to emerge out of this. And the question is, who's gonna help this person? Who, who's gonna care enough for this guy who's been robbed, stripped naked, left for dead? Who's gonna care anything about this person? Who's gonna help? Who's gonna do something? Who's gonna be a neighbor? And so Jesus keeps on with the story because everybody's like leaning in now. It's like, this is, this is brutal, this is tragic. He says, a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And, and Jesus puts a religious leader into the story. And when people hear that a priest is on the road, they're thinking, ah, help's on the way. He's probably leaving Jerusalem. He's been at the temple. He's been offering sacrifices. He's been worshiping God. Surely this priest is gonna do something. But in a surprising or not so surprising turn of events, the priest sees the man and he moves away to the other side of the road and he passes on by. And it's like, why would he do that? Who would do that? And people have speculated now for, you know, for centuries about why would this priest do this? And, and some people say, well, it's because of the Old Testament law that says priests are not allowed to touch corpses and maybe he thought he was already dead. Well, I don't think that's true because there was also another loophole to that law that says a priest could touch a corpse if the corpse was left unattended and this body was unattended. So the priest technically could have touched him and it wouldn't have made him unclean. Others have said, well, you know what? There was kind of this, this idea of Jewish karma that you know, probably the priest looked at the guy and said, well, you know, I don't know what you did to deserve it, but apparently you deserved it. And I don't wanna get involved because I don't wanna rob God of the opportunity to teach this guy of a lesson that he obviously needs to learn. So I, I'm, just, I'm just not gonna involve myself. Obviously, you deserved it, it didn't happen to me, I don't deserve it, so I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna involve, I'm just gonna keep on going. Other people said, well, maybe he thought it was a trap. Maybe the guy was, you know, just pretending. And the moment that he stops to care for this guy, there's gonna be, you know, a mob that robs and beats him up. But here's the thing. The point is, not necessarily what he did. The point is what he didn't do. He doesn't do anything to help. And the reason that he doesn't help, we're not told why that reason is, but, he, but here's the thing. Here's what I know about me and what I know about you and what I know about us as human beings and what I can know about this priest. Somehow he justified it. He justified it to himself. He found a verse, he found an interpretation, he created a reason, he, he adopted a way of thinking that gave him an excuse that protected his conscience enough that he could pass on by and not be bothered by it. He had a mindset, he had an attitude. He justified it to himself. He saw exactly what was going on. Here's a guy dying, clinging to life, naked, been robbed and beaten and left for dead. But he justified it. He found a reason, he found a verse, he found a belief, he found a way of thinking that allowed him to move on past without it bothering him. It made sense to him, it gave him a pass. He found an exception, he found an exemption. He adopted a way of thinking that limited, restricted, and hindered his capacity to love in that moment. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand. And then Jesus goes on and he says, so too, a Levite. Now, you know, a priest is a professional. A Levite, they're kind of semi-professional. Uh, they're another religious leader, but they're kind of an assistant to the priest. So this is kind of like a worship leader, less professional, but probably more hip, all right? That, that's a Levite. Uh, and so here's this Levite, he comes, you know, along the way. And perhaps he's been at the temple as well. And the text actually suggests that he slowed down he might have even stopped for a moment to kind of take it all in. And he takes in just, man, this guy is wounded. He's bleeding. This is not good. This guy's probably not gonna make it. And he slows down. 
And he takes a long look at the guy. And maybe even the guy is semi-conscious and it raises the hopes that, hey, finally somebody's gonna help me. But just when he thinks somebody's gonna help him, all hopes are dashed when the Levite too just walks away. And he walks away because he found a justification to walk away. He found a reason to do it. He found a pass, a loophole, an exception, an exemption. And somehow he told himself something that allowed him to do this and not be bothered by it. And he, like the priest, withheld love from his Jewish neighbor. Now, anybody who's paying any attention in the crowd that day, anybody with a modicum of intelligence, they knew exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving a public slap across the face to the religious establishment, to the religious leadership. It is a direct condemnation. And here's this expert of the law who's asking Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus has put a priest in the story and a Levite in the story, and both of them passed on by. It was a slap in the face, and Jesus is looking this guy in the face and everybody knew the point that Jesus was making. Those people, the priests and the Levite in the story were the people who were supposed to know the most about God, the people who were supposed to cherish the scriptures more than anybody else. They worshiped regularly, they prayed, they fasted, they gave, they offered sacrifices, they did all the things. But yet, their heart was the furthest away from God's heart. They were supposed to be the most moral. They were supposed to be good. But their heart is actually the furthest away from God. That they were worshiping God with their words and their actions, but their hearts were far out of step with God's heartbeat and God's concern. They were proud of their faith, but they missed the point of their faith. According to Jesus, and this is what it means, according to Jesus, the priest and the Levite did not love the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Say, well, how do you know? Because they did not love their neighbor. They did not love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we know? Because they did not love their neighbor. And then Jesus, he keeps on going. He says, but a Samaritan. Now, if you're not you know, very familiar with Samaritans in the scripture. Samaritans were hated by the Jews and had been hated by the Jews for centuries. Uh, they had intermarried with the Assyrians back around 700 BC. The Jews considered them half-breeds, half, half Jewish, half Assyrian. And over time, over time, they developed their own expression of faith. They had their own temple. Uh, they did their own sacrifices. Uh, they had their own, you know, kind of ideas about God. And so Jesus introduces the Samaritan to the story, this group of people who Jews considered half-breeds, that the Jews hated, that the Jews, when they thought of them, they were like, here are these people, they couldn't be more wrong. They've got their own expressions of faith, they've got their own temple, you know, but they believed, the Jewish people, when it came to the Samaritans, they believed that these people, that God did not hear the prayers of the Samaritans, that God did not accept the sacrifice of the Samaritans, that God considered the Samaritans unholy, that he considered them unclean, that they were considered to be cursed. Now, you can go on to the next slide and I'll catch them in just a minute, but when it comes to how Jewish people felt about Samaritans, it really was the equivalent of religiously sanctioned hatred. Religiously sanctioned hatred because Samaritans were not considered to be neighbors. They, they, were, they were considered something cursed. They were considered reprobates. They were considered abominations. And this hatred that the Jewish people had for Samaritans, that their religion sanctioned in many ways, that, that hatred that they had for the Samaritans, it gave birth to stereotypes and biases and prejudices that limited, restricted, and hindered their capacity, the Jewish people's capacity to love. That's what happened. And everyone who's listening to this story are like, surely Jesus is not gonna make a Samaritan the hero of the story. And that's exactly what Jesus is about to do. He's gonna make a reprobate. He's gonna make someone that everybody considered an abomination, the hero of the story. And Jesus is gonna cast a Samaritan as the one who's actually closest to the heart of God. A non-Jewish Samaritan is gonna be more in line with the Jewish scriptures than the religious Jews were, than the priest and the Levite were. 
Jesus humanizes this Samaritan who had been dehumanized for centuries by Jewish people. He's gonna try to take away the stigma, the stereotype. He's gonna try to deconstruct the hatred. And he's gonna make a hero out of someone who was hated. Matter of fact, Jesus and his movement's gonna, gonna change the world. And today, what began as a racial slur or an ethnic slur, if you'd looked at a Jewish person in the first century and said, you remind me of a Samaritan, they would, how dare you? But now we look at someone and say, thank you for being a good Samaritan. It's a compliment. It's become an English idiom. I mean, so, but it wasn't that in the beginning. So to understand what Jesus is saying, and then we're gonna wrap it up. To understand what Jesus is saying, Jesus, I think would say, stop for a moment and to understand the point that I'm making, I want you to think of someone who angers you, disgusts you, frustrates you. If there's somebody that you think is a reprobate or somebody that you would consider an abomination, someone that you would consider disgusting, I want you to recast them in the story as the hero. Because Samaritan's kind of emotionally neutral for you, but, but in the world that we live in, maybe for you, you need to think about the parable of the good Muslim or the parable of the good Democrat or the parable of the good Republican. Maybe you should consider this story being the parable of the good undocumented immigrant or the parable of the good drug addict or the parable of the good welfare recipient or the parable of the good wealthy one percenter or the parable of the good homosexual or the parable of the good transsexual or the parable of the Black Lives Matters activist who happens to be good or the parable of the good Blue Lives Matters advocate who happens to be good in the story. Just find somebody that makes you incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly angry, incre incredibly frustrated and cast them as the hero of the story and then you'll begin to understand how people in that day felt. So Jesus said, let me finish the story. But a Samaritan, he traveled, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He saw him, he felt something, and he acted. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. I mean, no latex gloves, no protective medical equipment. He just jumps in. He pours on oil and wine, not cheap, expensive. Then he put the man, picks him up, picks him up. He picks up this Jewish man who had hated people like him his entire life, who had stigmatized, stereotyped, been prejudiced against for all their life. He picks up this Jewish guy, puts him on his shoulder, puts him on his donkey, and he walks beside of the guy and he brought him to an end and he took care of him, took care of him. And it says the next day, he spent the night with him. He made sure this guy didn't, didn't die on his watch. And then the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, I want you to look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And everybody's thinking, there's no Samaritan ever gonna do that. Because they had so hated them and dehumanized them and stereotyped them. They had lost all sense that this is a person created in the image of God. And Jesus says, okay, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And this is the question that forces us to look into our hearts to say, you know what? Do I have some hate and prejudice and contempt for someone or a group of someones? Has my heart somehow been gripped by by some sliver of racism or sexism or classism or nationalism or elitism or has my heart been gripped in some way by something that has limited, hindered or restricted my capacity to love my neighbor or even how I define my neighbor, the scope of love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus' question is who loved the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength? Who was it who crossed political lines and religious lines and social lines to love a stranger as a neighbor? And the expert, he had no choice. He was backed in a corner. He said, the one, he couldn't even say Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus looked at that Jewish religious expert and said, well, you, you go and do that. 
You go and live your life like that Samaritan. And Jesus redefined neighbor. A neighbor is not somebody who shares our beliefs, our values, our politics, our nationality, our geography, our ethnicity, our economic status, our education. No, Jesus said, your neighbor is everyone. So go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Who is the neighbor in the story? It's the one who saw a need and met it. It's the one who discovered what the price was and paid it and refused to justify not getting involved. Who refused to justify passing on by. Who refused to find a verse or a loophole or an exemption or an exception. The one who got close enough, who got involved, who decided to love a stranger like a neighbor. And the point Jesus was making is that the greatest evidence and expression of our faith is love. Our greatest evidence and expression of our faith in God is a love for a neighbor. The good Samaritan, he had some proximity. And when you get proximity to people, it deconstructs stereotypes, it it shatters categories, it, it creates understanding, it broadens our perspective. You get to hear people's story when you get close enough to listen. And Jesus would say, like the good Samaritan, you gotta get close because the closer we get, the harder it becomes to hate. It's easy to hate from far away. It's easy to hate on the other side of social media. It's easy to hate on the other side of the television. The closer we get, the harder it is to hate. And Jesus said, if you're gonna follow me, understand, Christians don't have enemies. They only have neighbors. Now Jesus, he turned out to be the true good Samaritan because he entered into a world full of need, full of hurting people, robbed and beaten up and left for dead by sin. You know what Jesus did? He stopped. And he got involved. And he found out what the need was and he met it. And he figured out the price and he paid it. And he laid down his life. And Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So when you're not sure what to do, think about how Jesus has loved you and love like that. It's not sappy, it's not sentimental. You took, you take a moment and look at a rugged cross and that's what love looks like. And you think about how God has loved you and you go and love the world like that. Then they'll know that you followed me. And that's how you'll know if your faith is true and if your love for God is authentic because you'll give evidence of it and express it in your love for your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Everyone. Father, in Jesus' name, speak to our hearts. I pray in this moment that we take the words of Jesus when he says that we should love as we've been loved that we pause for a moment and think about how we've been loved. That God demonstrated his love for us, that Christ died for us, even when we were sinners, when we were reprobates, when we were abominations, when we were enemies, when we were stubborn and willful in our sin. He pursued us, he came after us, he laid down his life for us, and he calls us to love as we have been loved. So may we turn our eyes to your heart and be reminded of how you love us so that we know how to love in the world where we find ourselves. And I pray that we'll do it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand.